thank you everyone for joining us on As Per Usual, a podcast that explores the current state of patient engagement in Canadian research and how to make it better. My name is Bryn Robinson and today we have a hot topic. In our study, participants noted that across projects and institutions, there's a lot of variability in how a patient partner can be paid for their involvement in research, if they're compensated at all. Worse still, when policies are inflexible to different financial needs of the partners in the projects, it tends to affect more of the people who are marginalized and hurt from less. Patient partner compensation is a topic that always comes up when we talk about patient engagement and for good reason. By not paying it, it signals a value proposition that not everyone around the table is an equal partner, despite what words may be said ahead of time. But aside from that, there's a lot of nuances that we're really excited to explore. And to get us started, Anna's gonna share what she found in her study before our expert panel today joins and expands with her own experience and research. Thanks, Bryn. Not only did our study identify the compensation-related issues you mentioned, it also identified characteristics of a preferred future state for patient partner compensation. In this preferred state, compensation practices have evolved to diminish the power imbalances that exist between academic researchers and patient partners. To support patient partners feeling that they're valued and equal members of the research team and help remove financial barriers that prevent many patients and caregivers from becoming patient partners in the first place. In this preferred state, patient partners are also regularly hired onto studies full-time. According to our study participants, two key mechanisms that contribute to the achieving and maintenance of this future state include universal standards and guidelines that are consistent and equitable compensation practices, which are flexible enough to allow for consideration of unique needs, like let's say patient partners that are on fixed incomes and are adopted by universities, research bodies, and researchers in general. They also include streamlined policies that come to be when institutions have resolved university and funding agent policies and structures that not only complicate, but limit and slow down how and when patient partners are compensated. So that said, in today's episode, we have Maureen Smith and Grace Fox on with us to share their insights on patient partner compensation based upon the research that they have conducted together on this topic. So let's dive in by having you, Maureen, and then Grace, share with the listeners a little bit about your background as it pertains to research and the experiences that you'll be sharing today. Thank you, Anna. It's uh, and Bryn. It's one, wonderful to be here today with Grace. So just a little bit of background of why I'm here with Grace. Grace is a star student who uh, finished a master's of epidemiology and her thesis topic was patient compensation from the institutional perspective. Um, and Grace invited me to be part of her technical advisory committee at the University of Ottawa. So just that in itself is an accomplishment that um, students who are working in patient engagement topics are actually inviting uh, um, people with lived experience to actually be part of their technical advisory committee. So I, along with three or four professors, uh, worked with Grace, but Grace did all the work. I wanna be very clear, it's Grace's research, she did all the work and we um, 
we uh, we supported her, um, and we were, I met with her regularly with the entire team and alone with Grace. Um, it was an absolutely wonderful experience. So you wonder why she only had one patient partner. It's because her focus is really on the institutional barriers and the institutional perspective. But even with that, she had the wisdom to say, okay, it's not a patient perspective on compensation, but I still should have a patient perspective. So because I'm a patient partner, I'm, I'm from the rare disease community. I've been doing all kinds of engagement and all kinds of work in the patient engagement field for over 20 years. And I do uh, partner with a lot of researchers and do encounter all kinds of compensation issues. And you're right, Brent, it's a hot topic. Um, when I was um, when I was afforded the opportunity, I said yes immediately because it's it was um, I, I think that I was able to sometimes frame things in a way that was you know patient friendly and and um, make it that you know that we that our perspective even though it wasn't built on that was still was still there and all of the terminology and everything that was used were things that are in 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 our in our lived experience. So that's my background and I do a lot of uh, pediatric rare disease uh, research in core outcome sets and methodological research and a lot of evidence synthesis. So um, and it's just uh, the compensation issue over the last five years, I would say has really uh, increased. Uh, when I started many years ago, it wasn't even a question like there, there was none. And then it started coming in. So I'll stop there and let Grace introduce herself. But uh, I'm really happy to be here today with Grace because uh, we had our wonderful working relationship. And um, as much as I was able to, to contribute, I learned a tremendous amount from, uh, from, from Grace. Thank you, Maureen. I mean, that's quite the introduction. I don't know if I can follow up with that, but uh, my name is Grace Fox. I'm a research assistant currently at the Ottawa Hospital Research Institute. Um, and in my role there, I, I help researchers and patient partners navigate patient engagement in their research. And one of the main areas is, is in compensation, how to recognize patient partners for their contributions to research. I'm a recent graduate of the uh, epidemiology program. I just finished my master's at the University of Ottawa, where I focused my thesis entirely on recognition of patient partners uh, for their contributions to research. Um, throughout my time working on my thesis, I was supported and guided by a, an amazing team of my thesis advisory committee. Maureen sat on that, that committee as well. And, I think Maureen and I met maybe the most throughout <laughs> that year. Um, I, it really, a lot of work was done in that year um, and it, none of it would have been possible without uh, such a supportive advisory committee. And so um, I learned a lot from thesis findings, but a lot of the recommendations that I take forward in my role as a, as a researcher, I learned from Maureen, a lot of recommendations about how to talk about compensation and um, yeah, and how, how to navigate these discussions. And um, so, yeah, and I guess a little bit about, about the, my thesis work without getting too into the, the findings. Um, we conducted a, a systematic review uh, first to assess the current landscape of patient partner compensation. So we looked at a cohort of published patient engagement in research. 
um, and assessed, you know, how often is patient partner compensation reported? And if so, what are the current practices? Just to gain a, an idea of the current landscape. And then later we surveyed the researchers as well as their institutions that were identified by the systematic review to gain a better understanding of, you know, challenges that they've experienced or any barriers that they've experienced to compensation beyond what was reported in their in their manuscripts. And then our last project um, was a scoping review to look at or identify all available guidance and policy around patient partner compensation. So documents that aim to, you know, support researchers and patient partners in navigating. Um, compensation. So that's a little bit about about me and my background. Thanks so much for that warm uh, introduction and for it's really nice to see when patient partner academic researcher relationships go so right. It just definitely serves as an example of what we all aspire to. So maybe you two could get together as well one day and do like a critical reflection that really outlines what the strengths were and how you fostered what is evidently a very close um, and positive relationship. So um, that said, do you think, Grace, you could maybe dive into a little bit, well, Grace, to start with, and then Maureen, what the findings of your scoping review were? And also, I know that you're doing some uh, follow-up work as well, really, to like apply the findings and build on them and to also um, help evolve the field of patient partner compensation, Grace. So maybe you could share a little bit about that as well. Yeah, no, exactly. Um, so from our systematic review, we found that we identified 316 studies um, or examples of patient engagement in research, from which I think 79 reported offering financial compensation to some or all of the patient partners on the team. So that is about 25%, a little bit higher than we expected, but the studies that we identified, they also reported patient engagement in accordance with the, the GRIP checklist or the guidance for reporting involvement of patients in the public. Um, so it was it's reasonable to to assume that they may be more likely to report on um, aspects of engagement like compensation if they are reporting in accordance with this um, checklist. But nonetheless, uh, we did. We also identified some challenges to offering financial compensation, including lack of guidance as well as um, institutional support. Um, and so those findings were mirrored in the in the survey, where we found that both researchers and institutional members were reporting lack of guidance as a key barrier to offering financial compensation. Um, to patient partners. So that was a very interesting finding, considering that in conjunction with that, we were, we were doing the scoping review and we identified, I think, 65 publicly available guidance documents. And so this highlights a clear like implementation gap. Uh, I do recognize that lack of guidance can mean more than lack of policy or, or guidelines, but nonetheless, it highlights this implementation gap that, you know, maybe patient, uh, patient partners or researchers or institutions are not aware of, of this existing guidance or are not using it um, for another reason. 
Um, and so that was a very interesting finding and kind of the basis for what we're trying to do now, which is really um, bring key players. Like Maureen said, I focused a lot on the researcher and the, and the institutional um, perspectives. However, we can't ignore the patient partner perspective here clearly. Um, and so we are extending an invitation to researchers, institutional leaders, um, patient partners, administrative professionals, legal experts, financial experts to attend a, a meeting, which we were just awarded the CIHR planning and dissemination grant to support this meeting. So very exciting that we're able to continue this work. Um, but the aim of the meeting is essentially to dive deeper into these challenges that occur for all these key players and brainstorm solutions to how we can overcome some of these challenges and really continue to support compensation practices within this community. Thanks so much for sharing that information at just the right level of detail too. Uh, Maureen, do, would you like to share anything about the findings of the review or perhaps anything that stuck out um, just as a patient partner, seeing that focus among academic researchers and institutions and how that maybe mirrored your own experience as well as I know the vast network of patient partners you have? So I, I just want to, I, I, I think I'd like to respond by uh, talking about what resonated uh, with me from 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 Grace's research, so it was um, I was really excited that someone was taking this on from the institutional perspective because there's been several really good important articles written by patient partners such as uh, Don uh, Richards and 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 people like that Lori Peru has written in the um, um, uh, Isabel Jordan that group. They've done a lot of really good work, very instrumental work in that, but we haven't seen anything really from the researcher side. And, you know, they do hold the power. <laughs> we can, we can, uh, we can, uh, you know, we can cry as loud as we want, but it's still, there's still a, a real power imbalance. So I was really excited to see that when I, when Grace, um, you know, showed us her findings, um, yeah, it really resonated for me. So, so, for example, with the lack of guidance, you know, like there's 65 publicly available documents, but there's no real guidance because, well, who's going to use what? You know, what do we what do we recommend? Do do people know about them? I'm going to tell you that about almost three years ago, I I made a pledge. So I'm I'm one of the people who's been doing this for many many years without compensation, never asked for compensation and never had those conversations and it was always very shy to have those conversations because I come from that you know an older era where people did it as volunteer work I started like 25 years ago in this area so you have to kind of you have to kind of see it from from where I was coming from and then and then people started you know offering comp compensation which is great I have restrictions because I have um, uh, tax restrictions, and so I'm also I'm also very careful about what I can and can't accept, and that's fine. It has to be very clear. But a, a couple of years ago, I worked on a big project, and with a very very big budget, and there was no compensation offered, and it was a really big budget. And I and I that day I said to myself, "That's it. That was the that was the straw that broke the camel's back." So every project that I'm on, I ask about compensation. 
I may not accept it. I may not be able to accept it and they may not offer it, but I open the conversation. And I can tell you that was very difficult for me to do because it just wasn't in my nature to do that. And I did it. I forced myself to do it for myself and for everybody else coming after me. So now I make sure if I'm, I'm participating in writing a protocol, you know, a grant application, for example, what does the budget look like? What, where is it? How are you going to compensate them? What rate are you going to use? What are you going to offer? I ask that question. And if anybody asks me to do something, I now say, are you offering compensation? And I, you know, I've just been asked to be on a panel in, in October. And I've already said I, it's a not-for-profit. As long as you pay my expenses, I will do it because that's, that's a different category for me. So I, I think that that having having that that so when I when I saw the findings of Grace's uh, research, it really resonated to me about those barriers. So it makes it very difficult for us to ask the question because if the person doesn't offer it, then you're, you know, you're kind of wondering will they or will they not? And if you're a person who assumes you're going to get compensated and you don't, that's a really that puts you in a really bad situation too. Or I've been in situations where people have been sent compensation without them accepting it, and the check arrives, and their taxes are are compromised for that year. So it can work like you know, in a goodwill gesture, turns against the person. So I was very interested in, in her institutional take on it and the barriers. And I know from myself, researchers that I've worked with have spent hours and hours working with finance departments trying to straighten these things out like like an incredible amount of time persevering trying to do the right thing for their patient partners and running into all kinds of barriers and not no understanding from those people in those jobs what patient partners what that is that we're not contractors we're not university contractors and that's been a really, really big challenge. And uh, so I, I when when Grace, you know, would show the findings, I would thought, yep, lived through that. Yeah, went through that. Yes, did that. And have always had, um, you know, some compassion for the researchers who are trying to pay people and do it fairly. And and just um, hitting their head against the, against a brick wall, and somehow that has to change too. Like that that, and I'll give you a, a good example of that. I participated in something just very recently, and it was a it was a bad experience with the with the compensation process. And I was told that they had had a workshop with their finance department a half day, and had brought all of the issues and we're working on resolving them point by point by point. And I thought, wow, that's really good because I, I complained and I, I, get, I was very honest, this is what happened. And, and so I think that with, uh, with researchers also weighing in on this, as important as it is for us as patient partners to have our perspective and, and try to improve it, it's also important for the, for the researchers like, like Grace to be working on it from from their end too, because I can't walk into the finance department and, and make changes. But but the researchers can put some pressure to, to get to make to get those changes made. 
Yeah, and I mean, certainly it sounds like you've certainly had the the gamut of experiences, unfortunately, to um, over over your um, over your work as a partner. I wonder. Um, one of the things you said that may, uh, made me uh, stop and think: um, What would you have as tips, perhaps? Like, where you know, it sounds like some of your comments uh, um, sort of led to a, a workshop, which hopefully is going to be productive for that group, and hopefully does lead to some meaningful changes. Uh, what would you do you have uh, maybe particular tips for for researchers on what they could be doing um, ahead of time so you don't necessarily have to be the one to start that conversation yeah i guess my top tip is offer it so don't make the person ask for it that would be number one be very clear and when you do offer it be very clear about how you're they're going to be paid will it generate a t4a you know or 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 not because that 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 generating a T4A can have a very big impact on people and never assume that people want to accept it. Some people don't want to take it and that's fine too. So offering is a really nice way of doing it. We're offering, you know, whatever amount is for for this and and let people you know, agree to that or have a conversation with you if they think that that's not a, a fair amount. And if you are basing it on a policy or a guidance document, say it. This is based on, you know, the Spore Evidence Alliance Compensation Policy, or this is based on the Diabetes Action Canada. Like whatever, whatever source you're 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 using to come up with that amount, just just be just be frank about it, and and um and explain explain what it is you can do. That's my that's my big thing. And please, other last one, don't don't uh don't uh think that uh paying expenses is, is compensation so something different so some people consider compensation uh you know we'll 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 pay for your taxi to get to the to get to the site so that's a completely different discussion and and um that would be my i mean but really my top tip is don't make people ask for, and then don't create a process where you need a phd in in uh you know in math to figure out how to actually well get i was gonna money. say i mean <laughs> absolutely i was about to say there that uh i know if my if my uh employment offered to pay me by paying for the cab to get to my meeting or you know i mean like and that was what i was getting i would probably you know take a little issue with that so i can i mean i think when we start framing it that way that's when they you know it kind of hits at home um those are wonderful points. Thank you, Maureen. Uh, Grace, I, I, to play off what Maureen was just uh, saying, sort of speaking to those 65 documents that you unearthed during your work, did any of them say anything like that what Maureen just said? Or are they all saying that and just nobody knows which one to use? Yeah, I mean, they, there are some recommendations within the documents. Um, we extracted quite a comprehensive list some were contradictory to each other. Some recommendations uh, recommended using like a fair market value calculator, while other documents advised against it for different reasons. Um, but just echoing what Maureen said, reimbursement is the bare minimum here. I mean, I, I don't believe patient partners should ever be paying out of pocket to be involved in research. Um, and I think one of our first conversations that I had with Maureen, I asked her, 
what was the best experience you've ever had with compensation and what's the worst experience you've ever had with compensation. And I tried to take recommendations from the best experience and use that to, to move forward and spread that word to other researchers in, in my institution who are looking to offer compensation. So some of the key uh, recommendations that I came across, and this is a mixture of Maureen's advice and as well as what came through from the, the scoping review, um, is just being transparent upfront. I mean, think about compensation as early as possible. Um, budget, time, uh, have a time commitment in, in mind for each patient partner. I think it, that's important in itself, but then that can also help you gauge compensation. Um, being transparent about it up front, whether you, the project's funded or it's not, explaining that right off the bat. In uh, a lot of the advertisements that we circulate in our institution to find patient partners, we have time commitment and compensation on that advertisement uh, because that may impact who's able to, to join the research project. Um, once patient partners are, are okay with the time commitment, I like to have one-on-one -on -one conversations with each one um, to discuss this is what we're, we're able to offer, financial and non-financial compensation. So for example, co-authorship on publications, we like to say that up front that that's available if patient partners are willing to accept that. Again, just like financial compensation, non-financial compensation can be refused as well. So just being upfront with what you're able to offer the amount that you're willing to offer, just as Maureen said, justify the rate if you have a guidance document. I always share it with any patient partners that I work with, just in case they're interested in reading more about why we chose this value. And then asking each individual person how they want to be compensated because it's so individualized or it should be unique to, to, the, to the person, essentially. And the only way you're going to find that out is by saying, hey, this is what we can offer. How would you like to accept it if you would like to accept it? Um, and so those are, are my big key um, recommendations. And I always like to be upfront about the financial implications of financial compensation. Um, so th the effect that it may have on income tax rates or um, patient partners ability to accept income in another way. Um, and yeah, just being very clear that even within our institution, if we're offering an honoraria of $100, we collect SIN numbers and some people aren't comfortable with that and that's totally okay and we can come up with a different way to compensate you. Um, so just being very upfront about all of those, those details and I think it's really on the researchers, uh, you know, it's on, it's on them to, to start this conversation and um, yeah, those are just a few key tips that I have. Thank you. Those were really practical, take practical takeaways from both of you. And I guess um, something that also really struck me is uh, an issue that I see coming up more and more, especially among people who are new to patient engagement and research, and they're seeing calls out there that are increasingly asking for patient engagement and grant funding calls but perhaps they're like smaller research groups, so they don't have any form of funding. Um, and then I see that hesitance where they just don't know what to do because they say, well, I wanna engage patients, but 
I have no budget. I don't really have a slush fund. So something that I've recommended to these individuals is like you both said, be very upfront about this, but then also tell the patient partners that you are committed to working with them to develop the budget so that when the study, if it is successfully funded and goes forward, there will be fair um, compensation. So I know that's something that I've kind of come up with through my experiences, but I'm wondering what you both think about that and what you say to these groups that say, you know, I want to, but I don't know, like, should I just not engage patients then? Yeah, one of the interesting things that I noticed was a lot of frameworks for patient engagement in research recommend engaging patients as early as possible in the project. And that makes sense because you want their perspective at the research question development stage when you're deciding what to propose for funding um, so that some of the details are, you know, can be influenced by patient partners before they're somewhat fixed by a successful application. Um, and so, again, it's, this is something that we've grappled with and we've, we've had meetings with um, the CIHR and we've brought this up that we need more planning and dissemination grants and we need more catalyst grants to create these relationships and create these proposals. Um, and we need funds to do that with patient partners. Um, in the example, Anna, that you just mentioned, I think that's a great way to approach it. I mean, not all projects are, are funded and being transparent about that at the beginning. We don't have funding right now, but if we get this grant, we are committed to offering you compensation for your involvement in the, the funding application development phase, as well as being engaged throughout the project. And if that doesn't work for some patient partners, then that doesn't work. Um, but just being transparent about there's no funding right now, but we are committed to compensating you for this work when we're successful. Um, and we want to maintain engagement throughout this project. I appreciate the efforts that you're making to to do that because I've been I've devoted hours and hours to grant applications that didn't get funded and didn't receive anything at all. And I think it's becoming quite popular now that when they do get the funding that they do go back and they will try to compensate you for the work that you did work on. I think, I think that if CIHR was really serious about you know, strategy for patient-oriented research, they could create a fund where researchers could apply and say, I didn't get funded, but I have, and it wouldn't have to be a big amount of money. You know, I, you know, they could put a maximum amount of hours, you know, maybe, you know, five to 10 hours and say, I would apply for some funding for my patient partners who participated in, you know, in, in doing this. Because just filling out uh, you know, the uh, either the applicant profile or the common CV and all of those processes, just that is your five to 10 hours might be might be just there. So I think that if they really were serious about it, that that, you know, and and, and they're, they're going to get nothing right. Like they don't they not only did the project that maybe they have their hearts sit on didn't get funded, but they're also not going to get anything for participating. And that might be, you know, I, I, I think that I don't think it would cost billions of dollars to to do that and it would be a it would be a, a move to show that we value um uh, patient engagement at the at at the idea stage 
and and I think that that idea stage is so incredibly important, and uh, and that I and I and I feel that sometimes the researchers don't do as much engagement there because they do feel that well you know I I can't offer anything at this point and I'm asking them to do all this work. Yet it's one of the most important parts is to get that question right, to get the outcomes right. And um, I think that I think that we've shown that uh, patient engagement early on uh, leads to, you know, better research. So, you know, I think there's certain commitments that could be made to to bolster it and not put it all on the on on the researchers. And just on that, on that, you know, what we have to remember is that everyone starts somewhere. And some some researchers, it's the first time that they're doing it. So a couple of months ago, I was told by a research assistant when I asked about the compensation, which I knew was there because I had been been part of developing the grant application. Oh, we can't pay you. We're not allowed to pay patient partners. And I said, oh, okay. Um, so you have a department at your university who you should call. <laughs> call Grace Fox. Now have a conversation with them because so and it's not it's not it's not malintent it's just not knowing and great these teams are engaging for the first time I'm always so happy to see them joining and so I'm always very kind and patient and say well actually if you don't do it you're gonna get your hands slapped you know and it's in your it's actually in your in your grant application and yes, you can. And, um, and, and, and so it's just a matter of not knowing. And, and so there has to, there should also be, you know, um, when, when people do, you know, when people do um, take the courses that research assistants take and things like that for grant applications, there should be a section on compensation where they get more training on that so that they don't say something like that and and uh maybe say it to the wrong person and uh you know and and not get such a you know a polite answer or maybe the person just believes it and then so i i think that i think that part of the institutional piece is institutions um devoting time and resources to helping out their own researchers get this done and not just leaving it to them, like just swim, you know, like figure it out for yourself. And and I think that um, uh, that's really important too, because it's it's not um, it's not that they don't want to do it. It's just that they don't know. Like they they honestly they honestly don't know. And and I don't want that to be a barrier to people coming into patient engagement. That's amazing. Yeah, I mean, I'm just, and I guess I do want, like, what you were starting to both you touch on in terms of the institutional piece. I, I was wondering, and you don't have to name name names per se, but uh, institutions that are doing it well, that are doing it right. Like, what is it they're doing from the institutional level, like that you're seeing that could be copied, that could be that we could start maybe sharing with other institutions in our own work, being that sort of ambassador and saying, hey, I see that this place is doing this. Maybe we should be doing copying these things as well. Do either of you have any things that you've seen that you could share with us? I mean, I can, I'm sure Maureen can speak to several institutions. I can speak to the one that I'm at. I mean, at the, the Ottawa Hospital Research Institute, um, it's 
relatively easy for me to uh, go about offering compensation. Um, one thing I will note is that within the scope of the documents that we found in the scoping reviews about guidance for um, how to recognize patient partners for their contributions, um, none of the guidance alluded to how to implement within an institution. And so you can have all this guidance, but if your institution has um, barriers set up, it becomes very challenging to be able to overcome those barriers within your own institution. And I have noticed that um, the in, whenever I offer honoraria to any patient partners, um, I can share like an intake form that puts them right into the OHRI system. They can fill it out with their name, address, SIN number, all of the details that we need to generate um, a check. We can deposit into their accounts if that's how they would prefer to be um, receive the honoraria or a check in the mail is another, another way. Um, so that's relatively easy. They can fill that in themselves. Once they're in the system, I can easily uh, move any sort of funds to them. And we also have like a cost code for patient partners, which seems like such a small thing but I guarantee there are some institutions that don't have a code for patient partner compensation or reimbursement. And something as small as assigning this code uh, can make it a lot easier for researchers to properly compensate. Um, Is that something partners. you got? Is that something you got them to do? No, I think- I'm trying to figure out how do, how do we get, how do we make everybody do this <laughs> One thing I am hoping that they can do is come up with some sort of a contract that's um, more geared towards patient yeah. partner researcher relationships because we don't have that. And I had issues with that several years ago and I don't think it's resolved to the state. So that's something that we could work on. Um, but yeah, I mean, I don't, I'm not complaining about the OHRI. I think we do a great job there. Um, and it's very easy for researchers to offer compensation, which is, um, which is ideal and, and good to work with, honestly. Can I briefly give my two cents on it? I think institutions who do it right are institutions who recognize that it's not that it's not going away. Patient compensation is not going away. And that the system that they have for, you know, paying contractors or people who do work for the university doesn't work for patient partners and that they have to make some changes. And it may take time, but they have to work with that. And I think part of that is, is through training and through understanding. And, and that when they're, that they recognize that it's a work in progress and that they're making changes. Because sometimes I just see an unwillingness, like this is the way it is. And this is the way that we do it. Case closed. And it just doesn't work. So I think it's a matter of, I think that's what it's a matter of saying, well, now in the world of research, we have these other people who have come into our world and they're different than all of the other people with whom our, our department deals with. And, and we're going to work with our researchers and with our patient partners to understand what their needs are and to come up with a system that's actually going to work for them. And that I think is what needs to happen. And some institutions are working on it and others um, don't. I, I think it's just no. And I, I really feel sorry for the researchers who are banging their heads against, against those walls. 
and it's not just in Canada. So I, I can tell you, I do a lot of international work. It's all, the issues are all over the place. And it, it really is, it's almost like, it's not going to go away. Like I want to say, wake up, like it's not going away. Patient partners aren't leaving. We're, we're in the system now and your system has to acknowledge that. And I think that with the research that Grace is doing and with patient partners being more and more vocal about it, the message is going to come out, but it's, it takes time and it takes willingness and it takes some champions at, at, the, at the high levels of the university too. Like change needs to occur from, from the top. People at the top need to say, okay, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to make it my mission to also champion this and I'm going to, I'm going to help out with this so that it's not the same researcher calling and complaining, you know, every couple of months and, oh my, what a pain in the neck. I wish he'd, I wish he'd work with mice. We don't have to compensate them. So, you know, I, I, I think it's, I think it's a really, I think a revolution of, of working with that full compensation has to occur and, and uh, patient partners aren't, aren't going to, aren't going to, aren't going to be quiet on it anymore. And then all it does is it puts researchers in a very difficult position of, you know, of getting these nice trusty relationships with the people who they want to work with, because they're, they're constantly spending their hours of their, of their days, you know, fighting a system that, that, that's unwilling to, uh, to change. But that being said, as Grace explained, there's, there are some really big, big changes happening, but it's going to be a little bit more 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 widespread and CIHR needs to take some leadership in that area too. So there's a lot of things that at the pan-Canadian level could occur that I just don't see any interest in doing. It's like everybody go to your corner and 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 do your own thing. And wow, that's a lot of that's a lot of duplication of effort too. And uh, for someone like me who works in different provinces with different research and different institutions, it you just like you don't like you can't even begin to understand how, how, how each one works. It's very, very complex. So it's 65 documents worth of duplication by the sounds <laughs> of it. <laughs> there you go, Bryn. <laughs> oh my goodness. Well, you know what? I'm, I, I think if we have, if it, if it's, you know, if we have folks like Grace who are going to lead the way and make this systematic changes in the system. And if we have folks like Maureen who are so generous with their comments and start in keeping that conversation going, I think, maybe we can start seeing those systemic changes on the pan-Canadian level at the institutional levels. So um, thank you so much, both of you, for joining us tonight and for sharing your expertise. Um, it, what a wonderful conversation. I can't wait to go back on this and just look at all the, the action items that I think we can all take and then move forward with our own institutions. And I think if anything, what we're trying to do with a lot of, with this podcast in general, and not just this episode, but we want folks to take stuff from the, every episode and say, okay, what can I do tomorrow? What, maybe it's starting to advocate in the finance department for a billing code that they can use. Maybe it's to, you know, it's talking about that, uh, you know, the five to 10 hours and saying, how can we get that ahead of time? Cause I know I'm going to apply for that grant and, you know, we don't know how it's going to turn out. So um, I hope we can share more. We'll, we'll be sharing any of the resources that either of you have shared and your papers um, and anything like that in our in our uh, on our website on our Substack and in the uh, description um, wherever the podcast is on be it on audio with Spotify Apple and with YouTube with the closed captioning as well. So both thank you so much for sharing your expertise and your time with us so generously. 
um, if anyone wants to reach out to us, you can reach out to Anna at Anna.asperusual at gmail.com. Uh, mine is Bryn.asperusual at gmail.com. So thank you very much. And let's take these lessons forward to help make patient engagement the standard in research or as per usual. Thanks very much.